I want to read from two passages this morning. The first is the book of Exodus in chapter 16, the first 12 verses. The second is the chapter to which we've been alluding in this series on the wilderness wandering, Revelation 12. just want to point out a few things in the introduction with regard to that chapter and the truths taught there that we are in the wilderness too. The first Exodus 16, and you have here the account of Israel continuing into the wilderness and being blessed with the manna. So Exodus 16, the word of God, and they journeyed, Israel journeyed from Elam, that's the 12 wells of water, the 70 palm trees, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also, Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. What are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses spoke to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Thus far we read from Exodus, and that will be the the subject of our sermon, the text from which our sermon on manna is based. Actually, it's going to be at least two, maybe three sermons on this manna, but we'll speak of that presently. Turn to Revelation 12 with me, though, and let's just think a bit about this passage once again. And this passage is rehearsed for us basically all of history, the history of the Old Dispensation, the Old Covenant, and the history of the New Testament. There is there a great sign in heaven in Revelation 12 uh, of a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head, a garland of 12 stars. That's verse 1. And then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. 
can't uh, read uh, too much more in this passage here, but just to say this is a picture of the Old Testament uh, woman, the church of Jesus Christ that would bring forth this child, the Christ. But then at verse 3, we read of another sign appearing to the apostle John in heaven, and that's of the devil. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And, and there's the history here of his drawing the third of the stars of heaven that would be angels to the earth. And then he stands before the woman seeking to devour the man-child as she gives birth to him. This is an explicit reference to Herod uh, seeking to kill Jesus and all the other baby boys around Bethlehem because he'd heard that one was going to be born, the king of the Jews. And so at this point in verse 5, we read very briefly the whole of the New Testament. She bore a male child, Jesus was born, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and then fast forward to the ascension. Her child was caught up to God in his throne. So there's not detail given here. This is a vision, but there's a vignette, a picture of the history of Jesus, and it skips even his crucifixion, and it speaks of his ascension, and he's there, and he's on the throne. But then there's more detail given to the woman. She fled into the wilderness, it says here in verse 6, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days, which is a uh, record of the entire new dispensation from Christ's ascension until the end of time. Fast forward in our reading, verse 13, we don't have time to consider this all, but the dragon between the verse we just read and verse 13, has been cast to the earth. He no more has a place in heaven because Christ is there, children. Christ is in heaven, and the devil has no place in there. He used to. He used to visit God, and we read of that in Job. And he would mock the children of God who were there, but there was no atonement there for them, so he thought he had an accusation to... Um, to bring to God about these children that he calls his chosen and special, special children. But he has no more place because Christ is there, our advocate, our redeemer. But now, here's what he tries to do. He tries to attack that bride of Christ. Verse 13, now when the jag dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted or pursued the woman who gave birth to the male child. Now he pursues the New Testament church. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, wilderness, to her place in the wilderness, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon, the devil, was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. A lot there, but it's all there also in the book of Exodus, and 
really the first point I want to make in this introduction is that this wilderness experience of Israel, I remind you, is, is for us to know. The Old Testament is God's word for our learning. It's not just an isolated book conditioned by culture, spoken uh, to one certain people, maybe the physical sons of Abraham. But it's a book for all time, has the gospel of all time to all God's people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Israel's in the wilderness. They're going to receive manna there, as we hear. But we have to know we're this wilderness people. And the New Testament, in this passage and others, confirms this. We brought this up again, but we need to remember this. We are a people of the wilderness, which means there's no home here. We're, we're going through this place to to heaven, to Canaan, just like Israel was. And even though Jesus has come, and in a principal way, we have inherited the land. The kingdom of heaven is established in his blood. We are in the land, in the promised land of fellowship with God. Nevertheless, this is not fully and historically realized in all of its glory as it will be at the end of time. So not only does Canaan apply to us and we're those who dwell in the promised land, but the wilderness, the wilderness, and that's what we're focusing on in this series of sermons. We have a place, in fact, in the wilderness. The Bible says that in Revelation uh, 12, two times. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place, and then she might, she's given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, verse 14. Her place is the place with God in the wilderness. And the wilderness is, well, this world, this waste-howling nothing of a world, which to gain with losing the soul is to gain nothing except the wages of sin and hell. So there's this place, and further, the Bible says, this is a place prepared by God. It's by God. And though the devil wants to spew his lies into our place, into the church of Christ, into our homes and into our hearts, nevertheless, even the very earth, says Revelation 12, verse 16, helps the woman. And I take that to mean that because she's Christ, everything works together for her good, good and bad, and in all kinds of trials, they're working for our good. The earth itself is used of God to to firm us up in the faith of our fathers living still the faith in Jesus. So we have a place. But now what we want to consider in this giving of the manna in Exodus 16 is the place of manna in our lives. So we're going to read of the historical account of the giving of manna, what that all means. But we need to remember that in the wilderness, Israel given manna is, is a picture of us, the church, in the wilderness in this present time since Christ has ascended, receiving manna also, daily, daily. And I wonder, beloved, if sometimes we're just so wilderness-bound that we forget the manna in the wilderness, we don't believe, we grumble like Israel. Or maybe we're thinking this world isn't a wilderness and we're trying to appreciate 
appropriate the manna and Christ without any knowledge of sin, as if this is all this pie-in-the-sky thing and we've arrived. Somehow we have to learn of God from the wilderness and then from the manna that's given in it. So may God bless us as we consider the manna. And first of all, that this is a sign of God's covenant care. Not just care, but covenantal care. Secondly, the word that God speaks at this time. And finally, the people responding to this manna and to this word. You have this remarkable logistical problem. The care of Israel in the wilderness. Israel, which is some two million strong. The book of Numbers reminds us, and Numbers is about numbering the people as well as history. The the book of Numbers in chapter 1 reminds us that there were 600,000 who left Egypt uh, who were men of war, men who were able to fight. Well, that leaves out the children and the, the women, so we figure there's at least two million, and that's a conservative estimate. But two million people to be cared for in this wilderness where there is no water not only, but there's no food uh, that can certainly uh, support a, a people this large. No food and to support also their livestock. But God does it. God does it. And the amount is staggering. Children, if you can just kind of think the numbers thing. There needed to be one omer, there would be, God said, one omer per person per day. That's what God said. And the one omer, we learn, is about six pints of, of manna a day per person, average, some more, some less. Now, for this, that means there had to be about 12 million pints a day, 9 million pounds, 4,500 tons per day of manna for all the people to satisfy their needs. This amounts, as some have calculated, to 10 train uh, train loads of manna with 30 cars each. That's a lot of manna as if the train pulled up and was on the tracks right around and right near the, the, uh, the people. Uh, we know that wasn't so, but imagine that. There was this manna that descended from heaven during the night and was there on the dew to be gathered every morning except for the morning before the Sabbath, and there would be two days' worth. And this would be uh, this wonderful provision of God. And... And Moses is told here that this will be a provision, and we're told later on they'll have this for 40 years, this manna. There's going to be quail that's given. That's a little-known fact here. At this first giving of manna, there would be quail first that evening. They didn't have to wait till the next morning, but quail first. God, in his mercy, did this, and then there would be this manna the next day. But all of the vitamins would be there. All of the vitamins that we have to, we think we have to inject into our yeast and bread and so on is right there in the manna from heaven. What a care of God in this wilderness. And he never wavered in his care for the people. 
and he never wavered in his faithfulness to cause the manna to appear and to, um, to tell them just how to gather and so on. But here is this wonderful care of God. This is something, beloved, that people who don't reverence the Bible so much, uh, they, they can't figure this out. And so they try to come up with scientific explanations for this provision of this little small white thing like a coriander seed. And, and so they try to imagine different ways that this could have happened. Well, the fact is, this is a miracle, a miracle of God's provision from heaven just to Israel in just this way, just as he said, and just as we read in the Bible. So a miracle, a miracle of the divine one, and in it the people would know that God is the Lord. As Moses says, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And that's the one point that I want to emphasize, however briefly, in this first point, that this care of God of, his, of, of Israel was a covenantal care. It wasn't just stuff that he was giving them, but he was giving them truth, the truth of God. You shall know in the giving of the manna that I am the Lord your God. That's the same Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, being delivered, they were still to be aware of the fact, keenly aware every day, that the Lord was their God and that he would prepare for them or he would uh, provide for them. Well, that is, of course, striking because... This people doesn't deserve to be the people of God or to receive the manna because look at the occasion uh, of this giving of the manna. The people arrive into the wilderness. They're going deeper and deeper on the way to Sinai and there's no food. They can't find any food. And in verse 3, we read of their sin. The children of Israel said to them, Aaron and Moses, the leaders, the spokesmen of God, all that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full, for you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The whole congregation. Well, maybe there was a few who weren't so complaining. Maybe it was the mixed multitude that was leading in the rebellion. But as a whole, they're complaining and grumbling you see, they took their eye off God and they looked at their need and their utter inability to supply it. And they were concerned, of course, about themselves not only, but the little ones and the livestock and, and everything else. And what kind of a future do we have here? It's impossible. Well, beloved, this grumbling was sin. It was terrible sin. It was grumbling, as Moses points out, not just against Moses and Aaron, men, but against God. Moses leads these people to the knowledge of their sin. Uh, what are you doing? He said, your complaints aren't against us. They're against God. God said, I'm going to bring you to the wilderness, and that means I'm going to care for you there. I'm not going to abandon you there. And you're going to worship me there as a thankful people, not a grumbling, complaining people. So God teaches that he is the God of grace here. That's what we learn. The manna comes from heaven. God gives this, even though the people 
do sin against him. And the sin is exacerbated by the fact that now at this point, and not as at the point in Exodus 15 when they rebelled against uh, Moses about water, and the lack of it, but at this point, they're saying there's something better, and that's what we were given in Egypt. And all that we were there because there we ate bread to the full. So they're wanting Egypt, be like us wanting the world rather than what meager provision we think God gives us. And then they add to their sin uh, by taking the name of God in an oath in vain. They say, would to God, all that we had died by the hand of the Lord, and so on, uh, in the land of Egypt. And so they're saying that God should will or, or should bless us that we can go back. And they're trying to manipulate the name of God and to uh, uh, analyze what their course ought to be. This is all worse. And worse even by the fact that they say, a lie, you've brought us into or out of this, into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What a lie. What a lie about God and about Moses and about Aaron. So they learn here, and they're tested here, and they're given to see the glory of the Lord in the cloud here, first time that's mentioned in verse 10, all to remind them that God cares for them anyway. And this is something so beautiful, beloved, here. For us in the wilderness, God cares for us anyway. Maybe you could say that in, in any prayer of yours, and I could. God, I know that you care for me anyway. You care for me when I wasn't thinking of you. You were thinking of me. When I was rebelling against you, you weren't rebelling against yourself. You weren't unfaithful. You stuck to your word because God, you see, will be God. But here is this first thing we need to know. This people is cared for, and there's instruction given here. There's light from heaven here in the manna that would fill their, their stomachs. Their, their mind is enlightened, and they are reminded every single day that the Lord is their God, and that they might know the Lord their God. There's no doubt here. There's a powerful revelation from heaven here of the God with the people, even though the people don't want to be with God. This is the message of the bread from heaven. God rains it down, Moses says. He rains it down. Comes in the night mysteriously. And there it is every single morning. And when you were helpless, God was not. And when you were asleep, God was not. And you wake up, there he is. It's something also and always for us to remember, isn't it? God is in us, uh, with us in the wilderness, beloved. He's with us. And he's making his face to shine upon us. And it's not too hot. It's never too hot. And it's not too cold. It's never too cold. It's just right with God clothed with the clothing of his righteousness and knowing the peace that passes understanding, knowing that the Lord is your God. Whatever path in the wilderness you go, this is appreciating 
God. And this is the purpose of this series of sermons. And, and then it's to lead us to the message here, the, the word of God. And that's my second point. There's a word of God that God is speaking here. And I mean a word of God. He's speaking in this thing called manna. He's reminding us here of what he provides in the written word of God as well. In fact, the whole of the history of Exodus is summarized in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. Uh, The wilderness experience was God leading them 40 years to humble and to test them, to know it was in their heart, whether they would keep his commandments or not. But verse 3, so he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but, here's the message, man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. They're learning, is Israel here, something of the truth of God that's spoken to them in the manna, spoken to them through the dignitaries Aaron and Moses, spoken to them by the law and the prophets, and written, written down for them. In fact, Jesus reminds the devil of this wonderful truth that man does not live by bread alone when he's commanded to make stones into bread by the devil. And he says, no, but by every word of God does... Um, man live and so on in the New Testament. Jesus is referring to the written word of God. And this is news for us, you see. We live in this wilderness and we drink the water of life and we eat the bread of life, the manna, in the Bible. You see, there's a picture here of what God does in the giving of all things, not only, but that his principle, his principle lesson is going to be through the Bible. God spoke in various times in different ways in times past by, by the prophets and so on, but now he speaks in this more sure word of prophecy that like the manna, it's compared to the manna, is given from heaven. And it's for us, to eat and to, and to drink even as the manna was to eat long ago. Well, it's striking how Jesus himself is the word of God. When the Bible is the word of God, Jesus is the word of God. And that is the case because he's a fuller revelation of what God would say. And that's why the Bible itself is written of him, Psalm 40, verse 7. And these are the scriptures that the Jews search, John 5, 39. They testify of me. There's, a, there's a, a, a joining of written word, what God says, and what God says in Jesus that is so very important for the people to get here. There is this coming down from God so that people might know that he's the Lord, their God who will be revealed in Jesus, the final word from heaven. This is the lesson of the wilderness. It's all about God teaching them and testing them to believe in the Lord as revealed as he says he's revealed. At that time, 
through what we call a type or a shadow, a picture of things, and through the words of his servants. Now we have in the New Testament as well as the Old, the written inspired word of God. And Jesus come in this fullness of time in these latter days. This is the wonderful truth of the gospel of the Exodus, beloved. There is this truth as it is in Jesus revealed to us in the Bible and in himself. Understand that? So we walk through the wilderness and we eat and drink Jesus and we do that by eating and drinking his word, taking it in. The Bible even says we're to take it in. We're going to speak more of that in another sermon. But let me just say there's three or five things here about the truth of the Bible and the truth of Jesus that are pictured in the manna. The first thing is that they come from heaven. They do come from heaven. There's a revelation that comes down. It's not seen on the earth. The Bible is not any ordinary book. Jesus is not any ordinary man. He comes as God with us. That's the first thing the manna teaches us. There is no scientific explanation for the manna. It is a gift from God, an unspeakable gift of God. The people can't imagine it. They say, what is it? It's God speaking and God codifying everything he says in his own Son of God, word. So there's this connection here. And then there's this purity. The picture of the manna here as white, like coriander seed, as we'll read later on in the, uh, in the account of Exodus, is telling. The manna is white. It's pure. That's a symbol of purity in the Bible. That's why we can say that there's a correspondence almost to every last detail between the manna and the giving of it and the word of God written in Christ. For read this. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of God are pure words, white, as silver tried in a furnace of fire, purified seven times. Psalm 119, verse 140, thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is pure. And the idea, beloved, is that we ought to esteem very highly this manna in the Bible. And that is the Bible. This is daily food for chewing, for digesting, and for living by. We live by this. We go through the wilderness by this word that God has given to us. Because it's all the word of God. There's no mixture of heaven and earth here until God comes to the earth and descends to the earth in this word and gives us the word. And then, of course, this is true of Jesus. He's pure. So there's this parallel, the written word. Everybody lives by every word of God. And then this word of God, Jesus he is the one, 2 Corinthians 5, who's pure. He knows no sin. 1 Peter 2, 22, he did not sin. Hebrews 7, 26, he is 
uh, separate from sinners. 1 Peter 1.13, he's a lamb without spot and blemish, and we know from the gospel accounts that he's also conceived by the Holy Spirit. He did not have original sin. This is the word we live by. The Bible, and not just letters, but this person of Jesus Christ who's, as it were, the embodiment of everything that God would say from Genesis to Revelation. In the wilderness, beloved, you live by Jesus and eating and drinking him, and that is in the way of hearing the word preached and reading and understanding the word as well. You have also, and we could go on and on about this, but just a couple of other things We have also, of course, to know that this is sufficient for every day. God gives manna. Well, he gave quail, first of all. He'll give quail in a little while when they complain after a while, but that's in his wrath. They they hanker after quail and manna, and God says, I'm going to give you quail until it comes out of your ears for 30 days and 30 nights. But he gives his word, and that's enough. That's what he's saying here. His word. He gives Jesus, and he's enough, isn't he? He gives the message of the cross of Calvary, your sins are forgiven, and that's enough for me, isn't it? And for you, isn't it? And he gives the the record of that and the promises of that in the Bible, that I will be your God and you will be my people. And he gives wisdom in the word of God, the wisdom that is Christ. He gives us wisdom to be parents, wisdom to be elders, wisdom to be deacons, wisdom to be in a tough situation, wisdom to know what to do next. When we're thinking ahead, too far ahead, and fearful, we start to complain. It's sufficient. It's just enough. It's more than enough. It's even sweet. This is, in fact, a description of the taste of the the manna that we'll read of later. It's sweet like a wafer of honey. Sweet. It's good tasting. In fact, you can never get bored of this if you ate it by faith. Say, oh, man, one thing every single day. We like variety in our diet. And as sinners, we like variety in the truths that we would appropriate. You know what I have too much or eat too much of Christianity, do we? We're kind of bored of it. We're bored again of it and again and again and again of it. We're tempted by the flood of lies of the devil to go after anything else just so that it's more entertaining than worship and simply what God says. So there's that. But then it's very near. It's very near. The word is nigh you, Romans says, Romans chapter 10. The word is right near you. Do you know where that manna came, children? The manna came in Israel right around the camp, right there, right at their feet. And that leads to this final point. If the word is near you and the word is near me, the Bible and in Jesus, and it is, just like the manna was for Israel, what are we going to do with it? I want to commend to your 
thinking that you ought to ask what it is in, in this way, a reverent way. In verse 15, when the children of Israel saw it and they, they saw the small round substance as fine as frost on the ground, when they saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Now that word, what is it, is really where we get the word manna from. Ma-na is the Hebrew for what is it. Very simple. So they asked a question at first. Now, we don't know what was behind this question, but we do know what it is when people certain uh, question manna or Christ or the Bible. Today, a lot of people question, the, and they're saying, ha, it's not much. It's not much. Full of incongruities, inconsistencies, and things that don't reflect the true teaching of science. And so what is this? What is this pretender for truth when I have my measuring rod and my my altimeters and my other things that I can measure height and width and length and depth and so on by and chemicals by. What's that Bible compared to my knowledge of things and the way that I gain it? So they say, what is it? And they come to worship and, and they're not very happy with the simplicity of it all. And the fact that we would seek to be biblical and go in the wilderness by the book of God to know the Christ of God they say, oh, that's not enough. You've got to get up to date. And that's why you're so small, where you could be big if you just kind of opened things up and added to the Bible. What is it? Actually, to the natural man, 1 Corinthians 2 says, the spiritual things of God are foolishness. They can't understand it. So they ask in their ignorance and they're scratching their heads and in their Inherent rebellion against any truth that claims to be the truth, that claims to be sufficient for a people to live by, and the revelation of a God who is the God of our life. People question that. And their questioning is, is defiance. But then there's another question, another sort. And it's by the people that has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and they've tasted of the manna. And they in the wilderness have actually entered into the wilderness by faith. They're led there, but now they go willingly because this is the way of God. And they taste of that manna again, like maybe today in the preaching. And they say, what wonder is this? What God is this? What an amazing thing is this? And that's the question. That's the way they're questioning. And that's the way I would tell you and myself is the way we ought to approach the manna with reverence and godly wonder. What is this? New every morning. As the dew on the ground the manna from heaven, as Christ who struck and his tent is struck and he dies for our sins and is risen. That's a wonder of grace and a wonder to behold. Now, beloved, we know that even though this manna is revealed and Christ is revealed and we preach him and we love him, 
Nevertheless, as Revelation 2.17 tells us, there's a hidden manna still. There's a hidden manna. And I take that to mean that there's more to come, not fully revealed yet, because this wilderness can overtake and can really, really be a hard thing to live in. We can have hard days, not only but hard seasons of life, physically and mentally and spiritually, emotionally, as families, as individuals, as church. And so we go by faith in the wilderness, and we read the Bible by faith, and the tears are coming down, and the angst is building up because, well, we've been sinned against again, and we've sinned again, and what's going on? And we can't understand that God really is being faithful here, but the, the calling, beloved, is carry on and gather the manna every day. Going to do that? That's what we're going to consider next time. You gather the manna. You see, you either gather it, it's right at your feet, or you trample it underfoot. You're really believing the cross is sufficient to atone for your sins and the sins of those who've sinned against you, Or you just despise that word of God and you go on to some word you're going to try to find somewhere else of your own self-justification, self-sufficiency. What will it be? God gives the manna this way, according to the Bible. God gives the manna in the Jesus way. Taste and see every day and walk all the way home. Amen. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us. We've read and heard a few things about manna. And we pray, Lord, to receive the truth well and the manna by faith. We pray that you would bless each and every one here, and all of us, that we might Taste and see anew that you are good, even in the hard things of life, the wilderness experience, and we're longing for heaven, and yet we have to wait. We pray, Father, to do this together, to be gathering as a congregation, not grumbling as a congregation, to be speaking to one another of the Jesus of our salvation and not of all of our problems as if God could not meet them. Lord, we thank you for this time of worship. May our day be blessed all the day. Return us to your house once again. This, Lord, is our house, and we're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.